Hello, my name is Eva, and this is part three, the concluding episode on the series The Last Days of Elizabeth I, 1603. Before we start, just a few housekeeping notes. From now on, and until the new year, episodes will be every other week, so next episode will be in a fortnight. Last time, we left off on the 23rd of March, 1603, with Elizabeth lying in her bed and the Privy Council and courtiers surrounding her. It was by this time apparent to all that Elizabeth lay on her deathbed. We start on the evening of the 23rd of March, 1603. The members of the Privy Council and courtiers Amongst them, Elizabeth's kin, Robert Carey, have been with her all day, though the Queen has lost the power of speech. According to the Privy Council, she has indicated by hand that James VI is her successor. Now, finally, the courtiers and the Privy Council let the Queen rest. She falls asleep, and it is on this night that the Queen slips from heavy sleep into death in the early hours of the 24th of March, 1603. Elizabeth I of England was 69 years old and had ruled her kingdom for 44 years. The exact cause of her death was never confirmed and various illnesses were proposed then and now, ranging from cancer, pneumonia, or blood poisoning brought on either by the removal of her coronation ring, which I talked about in the first episode, or by her years-long use of copious amounts of lead-based makeup on her face. This substance was popular with the ladies of the Elizabethan court, but it was highly lethal and was classified as a poison 31 years after the Queen's death. Elizabeth had left strict instructions that there be no post-mortem, which is why the contemporary physicians could not determine the cause of death, and led later historians to speculate if her insistence on no physician's hands on her body was a way to retain the narrative of her virginity intact, no pun intended. Her ladies-in-waiting saw to it that they alone handled her body at first, and the body was then quickly given over to a trusted embalmer. So, while Elizabeth's body was offered all dignity, Robert Cecil stood before the moment for which he had so long planned and so long feared. It was essential to summon James VI as quickly as humanly possible, and Cecil would be the man to do it. So around 4am on the 24th of March, Robert Cecil gave the order to lock all entries to Richmond Palace and forbade all talk of the Queen's death. However, one man managed to sneak into Richmond before it was completely shut off. Robert Carey, who had stood by the Queen's bedside as she lay dying, Robert Carey, who was kin to the Queen and had known her since his youth, persuaded Henry Wotton, 
who was actually one of Robert Cecil's men, to let him in, and it was Henry Wotton who confirmed to Robert Carey that Queen Elizabeth was indeed dead. Though he was kin to the Queen, Robert Carey himself was from a minor noble house, and his and his family's fortunes had been elevated by the Queen, and they now stood to lose wealth and position under a new sovereign. Carey's sister, Lady Scope, was part of the royal household, and she too had worked very hard to secure the family's future in the nearest orbit of the new sovereign. According to Carey's memoirs, his sister had at some point between 1601 and 1603 received a sapphire ring from James VI that was to be returned to him on the occasion of Elizabeth's death as a confirmation that he was now King of England. With this in mind, Robert Carey decided that the best course of action would be to personally return the ring. After all, what better way to make a favourable impression on James VI than being the first to bring him the news of his new kingdom and call him Your Majesty? This was a very good plan, and the only problem with this excellent idea was that Robert Cecil intended to be the one to declare news to James. Now, Carey found that while he had been let in to Richmond Palace, he now could not leave it, for it was in total lockdown. Luckily for Carey, his brother, Lord Hunston, had also made it to Richmond just before the Queen died, and it was his brother who now helped Robert Carey out through the heavily guarded gates, and he did this by sheer bluff and bluster. Robert Carey hurried to the royal stables, found the first best horse he could, and rode like the devil to London, where he met up with an old friend, the Marshal at Charing Cross. But Robert Cecil, whose network of spies was second to none in all of Europe, he discovered Carey's whereabouts, and Cecil sent a message to Carey to report immediately to Whitehall Palace for he, Robert Carey, had been chosen to ride to Scotland to deliver the news. Carey was elated, but his older, wiser friend advised caution. He smelled a trap, for no way would Cecil let this momentous moment slip out of his own control. Carey would far more likely be riding right into a trap and be arrested as soon as he showed himself, and in those ten years' days, perhaps even be dispatched off. So Robert Carey decided to go off without the approval of Cecil. It was far too dangerous to set out at once, but by nine o'clock he was mounted and rode first to Doncaster in Yorkshire, and then on to Norham in Northumberland, close to the Scottish border where he suffered an accident as he bent over and his horse hit him in the head. Robert Carey arrived in Edinburgh at midnight on the 26th of March, 1603, taking two days on a journey which normally would take a rider six to eight days, even if they were in a hurry. King James VI of Scotland 
had already retired to bed when Robert Carey arrived and demanded an audience. He had to wait, but finally he was granted an audience before James, and in Robert Carey's muddy state, his face still bloodied from his accident, he was the first to bend the knee to James and hail him King of England, Ireland and Scotland. James, naturally, expected Carrie to then hand him letters of confirmation from the Privy Council. Well, that was when Carrie had to admit that he had actually come against orders. Carrie showed the king the sapphire ring given to Carrie's sister as confirmation of the news, and James is supposed to have said, It is enough. I know by this that you are a true messenger. Out of sheer gratitude, King James named Carrie to the very prestigious position as gentleman of the bedchamber right there and then. At last, Carrie's fortunes had been secured for the future, and James had got his kingdom. Well, James and Carrie were soon to find out how very good Robert Cecil was at being absolutely furious at people getting the better of him. But more on that later. Back at Richmond Palace, Elizabeth's embalmed body was put in a lead coffin and guarded day and night for three weeks until it was transported by barge during the dead of night to Whitehall Palace in London and from there taken by hearse to Westminster Abbey on the day of the funeral, the 28th of April, 1603. Elizabeth was interred at Westminster Abbey beside her sister, Mary I. Two sisters, two sister monarchs, side by side in death, though in life circumstances had put them on opposite sides. James and his retinue, including Carrie, made their triumphant entry into London on the 7th of May, 1603, and just days after, Cecil had Robert Carey dismissed from his new position, dismissed from the household, and practically banished from court. That was his revenge on Robert Carey. But James, he did not forget Carey, and in 1605, Robert Carey was again allowed into the royal household, and he was put in charge of the household of the then Prince Charles, who would grow up to be Charles I. But all that was in the future, for on the 25th of July, 1603, as James VI of Scotland was crowned James I of England, the mood amongst nobles and commoners was first and foremost relief. Relief that the transition of power from a long-living queen whom all of England knew to a foreign king whom hardly anyone had seen had passed peacefully. James would prove an able, if difficult, sovereign. His son, Charles I, well, his rule would prove so difficult that it would lead to civil war. But that is a story for another day. During this podcast, I have mentioned people like Margaret Beaufort. If you wish to know more about her, perhaps you'd consider visiting my other podcast called Literature, Laughter and Learning, 
Where I Review, a historical telling of the life of Margaret Beaufort, who was the mother of the first Tudor king, Henry VII. Anyway, until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.